Welcome to the Origin Canine Podcast, where our mission is to enhance the lives of working canines and handlers. We achieve this mission by speaking to the authentic and inspiring voices of the working canine community and by manufacturing high-quality tactical canine equipment from the Gold Coast of Australia. Check us out at www.origincanine.com. Enjoy the show. G'day guys, welcome to episode 6 of the Origin Canine podcast. Uh, so today my guest is another American, um, Aussies, you've got to start picking it up. Um, so my guest today has or was a police officer for 27 years. He's worked in SWAT patrol and uh, some training roles. He's worked canines from 2005 to 2018 and he's also worked with SEAL Team 1 and their multi-purpose canine program. Uh, he's the owner of Ridgeline Canine and the and Van S Canine, excuse me, as well as co-hosting the Working Dog Radio. Um, so, Eric Stambro, welcome. Hey, man, thanks for having me on. You're very welcome, man. Did I fuck any of that intro up? Uh, it's Ridge Side Canine is the not Ridgeline. A lot of do people say Ridgeline, but it's Ridge Side Canine is the uh, pet side of the house, and then Van S Canine is the working dog. Sweet. Cool. Well, I'm not going to edit that out. <laughs> yeah. Nope. I don't blame you. Awesome. And and like I was saying before we started recording, man, I really do appreciate your time and, and coming on because I mean, dude, you got your, your training, your two different training businesses. You got the podcast, like, and I know how hard it is to squeeze your life in, socializing that type of stuff, outside all that stuff. So, um, yeah, thanks, bro. I actually really really appreciate it, man. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. I'm lucky enough. Um, I got a lot of good employees and stuff that are running the pet side. So I was going to do some stuff up there today and they handle it so I can do this. And then I I have a dog I'm training for explosive detection. That's the only only real thing I got to focus on today. So this isn't bad. Yeah, cool, man. Mate, I was just at the um, the red line. Uh, red line. I keep saying every, everything's aligned for me today. Mm-hmm. Um, the red team training conference last, or sorry, this week in Sydney, Australia, for your guests or people, your audience. Um, and it, it was a scent detection uh, conference seminar. And we had Cameron Ford come out and was talking about a few things. Are you familiar with, like, obviously, you know who he is. Are you guys mates at all? Or? Yeah, he's been, um, I've been to his house. He's been here to my house. Uh, he's been to my facility. We've uh, we've had him on the podcast, I think, three times. I've been on his show. We did um, a joint thing with Working Dog Radio and him before when he was just getting kicked off and getting started. So, yeah, I know Cameron pretty well. Him and I talk, uh, yeah, probably weekly, I'd say. Yeah, cool, man. Uh, he seemed like a pretty down-to-earth nice kind of guy man shook his hand said g'day he looked at some of the kit that i had and uh then he was like off doing some other seminars uh, over the weekend i think he's doing it probably today and tomorrow so yeah small world man yeah he was um i just saw an episode dropped he was on um on pat's uh, uh podcast and canine paradigm canine paradigm i haven't listened to it yet but yeah cameron's a good guy so cameron's worked in in dual purpose dog work for years and years and years, but he's kind of gotten, I want to say pigeonholed, but shoved into the detection side and the science kind of side of it, but he's embraced it and cause he's really good at it. And uh, so I've learned a lot from him um, taking the little nuances. He 
you know, I helped him encourage him to get his podcast going and he's doing some different business stuff that he tells me I should be doing more teaching and less dog, you know, selling and that type of stuff. So him and I talk all the time. Yeah. Cool, man. Yeah. He definitely had a science element. Like they had a bit of a team there from, I think it was Auburn university. Mm-hmm. Um, man, some of the, the research and stuff they were doing was super, super hectic. They were talking about all these like different controls and stuff and all these sciencey words. And I was like, ah. yeah, we're <laughs> not going it. man. It's hard to, it's hard to kind of comprehend. So I just take little small pieces from that I can use, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly, man. And I, like anything else, you just cherry pick what you need and, and what's the important stuff to you. Hey, um, dude. So for my audience, obviously less so for yours, I just want to hear a, a little bit about like your childhood, where you grew up, what kind of kid you were, um, and any sort of major influencing things in your formative years. Um, so yeah, I grew up in Canton, Ohio. Um, I'm the oldest of three. I have a younger sister and younger brother. Um, it's funny because, and I just talked to somebody about this the other day. My mother did not like dogs. So I grew up my whole life, uh, until I was into an adult before I had a dog. Um, we didn't have any, I like them, you know, I like people's dogs, everybody's dogs. We just weren't allowed to have them. That wasn't her thing. So, um, I just grew up uh, playing sports, um, working. As soon as I turned 16, I got a job at McDonald's and worked there for three years exactly to the day. Um, I got into like a junior management position when I was still in high school. So I was like working all the time. Grades started suffering a little bit. I was a, I was a B student, not bad, you know, um, suffering a little bit because I was tired and, and whatever. And I, I went to college for a little bit, but I hated school. I hated every single bit of it. Like my whole life, I never liked it. I was good at it or okay at it. I just hated it. So then when I went to college, that didn't make it any better. I absolutely hated it. And um, I was just more about working. And here's something really funny. When I was a kid, and I don't even remember how old, man, like 14 maybe, my dad and I were talking. He was... <laughs> He was telling me how important it is to have a good credit score. And uh, I never forgot that ever. And, you know, I've always tried to keep the credit in the 800s and I've always thought about that, but that also kept me working right away. Like I need to work. You know, my parents made me pay my car insurance when I got a car. So um, that's expensive for a 16 year old kid. So I had to work, you know, and, and um, I've kind of done decent in almost everything I've done. So Worked at McDonald's for a while. Then they wanted me to quit school and to focus on McDonald's. And I was like, yeah, no. So I just started working in nightclubs and strip clubs as a DJ and all kinds of stuff. I have, I have a pretty crazy younger life. Yeah. Were you, uh, were you out on the tune most of the time? Like, were you out there trying to pull chicks and drinking beers? Or were you like a pretty focused work sort of dude? Well, my work was all related to bars. So, yes, I was still working i was you know working at a bar i had a fake id i was underage bartending um i was djing at at nightclubs djing at strip clubs so that that environment just um you know that's what all it is and and it's interesting because i moved to myrtle beach south carolina um for the australian audience it's on the east coast of this country everybody goes to myrtle beach like everybody knows where it's at and um 
I lived down there and DJed at strip clubs and partied and chased women and which as the DJ at the strip club was pretty easy and uh, drinking and everything. And then one day I was like, yeah, like I can't, there's nobody retires as a strip club DJ. You know what I mean? Like you, you can't work this forever. And I was getting burned out and then I moved home and tried to get started getting into law enforcement. All right. That's a, that's a, that's a big jump. Like, so you, you're just doing the circuit, <laughs> just being a mad dog, killing it. Um, at what point, tell me when the cops factors into this, was it just like a, you know, I'm looking for a stable job, seeing some cops around, looks like a good thing. Or was there like a specific influence that, that you went, Oh fuck it. I'm going to go law enforcement. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of guys I know that grew up that, that are cops, you know, that it was in their family and things like that. And they went, mine wasn't like that. I never, it wasn't really on my radar. I was a good, good guy. I wasn't getting in trouble or anything like that. I wasn't anti-police or anything like that, but it's so weird. I was driving down my street in my neighborhood back home where I grew up and I see one of my childhood friends, Mark, um, I've known him since probably second grade. He's a year older than me. And uh, he's he's jogging, and Mark was a uh, like played offense and defensive line in high school football. He was not not a little guy, not giant, but you know a high school lineman. He was decent size. He's running, and I've known Mike again or Mark my like whole life, and I had never seen this dude jog. And uh, I pull up, I go, "What are you doing, man?" And I hadn't talked to him in a while. He's like, "I'm getting ready for the Ohio Highway Patrol State Highway Patrol Academy. I got hired there." to be a, to be a state trooper. And I was like, really? And I don't know why, man, right after I got, I drove away from him that just sat on my head and never left. And I mean, there was time I went down to the, I went down to Myrtle beach. I think I can't remember if I was home from Myrtle visiting or it was before I went there. So I still had to sow my oats a little bit, but that never got out of my head. Mark, telling me that just telling me he got hired at the highway patrol and what that was like and what he was going to be doing. And I have no idea why, but that just hit me like a bolt of lightning. And then, um, it took me a while to get a police job after that. Uh, I got turned down by a couple of departments because I was DJing at a strip club. Um, I'm like, they're like, don't you think that's immoral? I'm like, I'm not stripping. I play music. (laughs) music. Right. And they didn't care, whatever. But, um, yeah, it took me a while. It took me till I was, so I was probably 20, 21 when, uh, I ran into Mark and I got one, um, I started doing police work then about 20, I was 24, somewhere around there when I, when I 23, 24, when I put myself through the Academy and stuff like that. Even at like 23 or 24, you've probably done a lot more growing up than, a lot of maybe potentially the other recruits. I mean, the difference between, you know, 18, for example, and 24 is massive. Yeah. Did, yeah. did that help you, you reckon? Or? Um, maybe because once I graduated high school and I went to a high school with a lot of kids, we had like 640 in my graduating class. So I had a lot of real good friends, my whole neighborhood and, and all the kids from school. As soon as I graduated, I stopped hanging out with all of them i just moved on and was immediately working in the bar so i was working with all adults like 30s 40s 50 year old people 
And so then all my entire friend group became older people. When I moved to Myrtle Beach, my two roommates were in their late 30s, maybe 40 even. Um, so I just, I don't know why, I just was around them. So maybe that helped a little bit with it, had a kind of a different older mentality at that point. Um, but when I went to the academy, so I put myself in the academy in 1990, end of 92, graduated like the early 93. And um, everybody in there was kind of close to my age, a little bit, a couple that were a little bit younger. Because in, in Ohio, you have to be 21 to be a cop. Um, so, yeah, I think everybody was pretty close to my age. Uh, there was a kid, you know, that was a little bit younger, but everybody's about the same. Some were morons that hadn't, they still needed to live a life. You know what I mean? They still needed, and I think I felt like I had already done all that, running and gunning with the, with the girls and, you know, living at a beach. And I lived across the street from the beach. It was just party nonstop. Yeah. So what was the adjustment then? If you've just gone from this like super pretty chilled out, do whatever you want, almost like your own boss to then paramilitary organization did you were you struck did you struggle to adjust or you reckon you you were sort of ready for it and you just went fuck it let's go yeah i was i was ready for it so when i was going through the academy i was working at a bar as a dj and then bartending and stuff like that a pretty pretty busy nightclub um but I knew I didn't like it, you know, I was sick of it. It was just a means to, to make some cash while I was going through the academy. So then when I got out of the academy, I um, worked in a couple real small departments for free. Well, one of them, the first one, I, you, when you, in, in Ohio, when you graduate, the, if you put yourself through the police academy, the, as soon as you graduate, the clock starts, tip, clock starts ticking. You have a certain amount of time to get a commission at a department before you have to go back to school. So I took a commission like immediately, like a, a month after I graduated, this small little place. Um, it's next to a little lake. It's not, not a resort town, but it's a small little one street light place. And um, probably a little bit of a speed trap, you know, and uh, you just go around at night and jiggle handles on the businesses and everybody knows everybody. And so I did that for a year and a half for free didn't get paid at all and then I just started working at other police departments and it wasn't it was not a hard adjustment for me I, but again I had to make money so I was still working in the nightclubs what why did you work for for free like how did that arrangement come about yeah that's what there's a lot of places like that these small little bergs they'll hire guys that are young that give them a commission so that you can get some police experience and um yeah, you, you don't get paid. You It's an auxiliary position, you know, basically, but you have full police powers and stuff. So a lot of these places will hire guys right out of the academy because they know those guys need to, you know, get that commission to stop that clock. Dude, that's like totally, that's really <laughs> strange to me because in Australia, yeah, it is. And, and I've got another, because I want, I want you to explain in, in a second the, um, like this, the state, oh, fuck, because you guys have like different types of police departments. Mm -hmm. You got like the sheriff's department, state police, county police. I don't understand what the difference between all of those is. Could you? Yeah, yeah could you so I'll, that? I'll, 
Yeah, I'll break down Ohio for you. Some places are a little bit different, but it's all relatively the same. So in Ohio, you have the state highway patrol. They're not state police. Um, I mean, they're they're law enforcement and they have full police powers, but they're state highway patrol. So most everything they do is related to roads and driving and, you know, accidents and speed and and safety type stuff like that. They do have guys that do investigations around, you know, um, stolen vehicles and license plate things and and that type of stuff and narcotics because, you know, you got to get the narcotics here to and from using the uh, roads. So they do that a lot. Um, some states have state police that they're full, full investigations. They handle homicides, domestic stuff. They do it, all that. But Ohio has state highway patrol. And then every single county in the in the state, I don't know how many there are in the state. There's 88. Um, I think I might even be right there, but it, there's 80 some. Each county has their own sheriff who's an elected official. And he he does the courthouse security, the jail, and then road patrol in all the unincorporated areas. So anywhere that's not a city, like um, that's not, you know, made into a city, it's a lot of rural areas, the sheriff covers all of that. Now, in some states, the state police cover all that, right? But in Ohio, the sheriffs do. And then within, excuse me, within those counties are cities like where I worked um, and have their own police, fire, government, all that stuff. Because when I was talking to Greg Tawney, he was he mentioned that word incorporated as well, but I just didn't get a chance to ask him. What does that mean? Is that just means it's like a metropolitan area? Yeah, it's in, it's incorporated is um, basically the city limits of what the city owns. So, you know, say uh, M- Melbourne, you have, you know, they have boundaries, right? And some cities sit up against other cities. There's a lot of that. Sometimes, though, the cities just outside of them is an unincorporated area, meaning they have a, a different type of government that runs it, but it's not a city. And that's where the, the sheriffs would, would come in. And like California, where, where Greg's at, is the same way. They have Their counties are massive, like massively huge areas. And there's not always cities that touch each other. There might be a city here, then a gap, and then another city, things like that. Um, that's, that's, so the incorporated is just the area that the city owns, basically. Yeah, okay. Yeah, because, I mean, in Australia, we just got the, we got the state police and then the federal police. Yeah. Um, and even the federal police, there's like the ACT component, which is the uh, Canberra state, Australian Capital Territory. And then there's the national, which is, you know, investigations and whatever. Right. So, yeah. And like, yeah, I guess that for me, that's really easy. I'm like, oh, different state police. And then you've got your federal police. You yeah. guys have all these different little names and stuff because we don't have counties and, you know, we sort of call it different things. Yeah, interesting, man. Um, all right. So <laughs> you're like, essentially you've put yourself through the police college, which is another strange thing for me to hear because mm-hmm. we just have each state has their own college. Right. Right. Um, and then you're, you're like looking for a job, so to speak, which is then your commission. Yeah. Yeah. You get a commission, which all of a sudden, you know, you swear in and you're a police officer in that jurisdiction, but you have, you know, carry gun anywhere and, and all that other thing is what's just a reason why a lot of guys do it but um yeah then you're just trying to find jobs there's i went from free to part-time for a while at department and then full-time 
Okay, man. Yeah, sweet. <laughs> you can tell that I'm just like, what? That's yeah, strange. Yeah, it man. doesn't. There's a lot of places that don't do that, you know, the free, you know, commission type stuff. Like right now, since I retired from the department that I worked at most of my career, Canton, I went to a neighboring department and got sworn in as a reserve, basically reserve officer. So I have a commission through this other department called Alliance Ohio, and um, I don't get paid there. It's just a way to keep a commission. I can stay, you know, I, I get training i can still go to the range i still get to shoot i still get to keep up with my skills you know i don't need the commission i just um want to have it you know i always when i retired i had it a lot of guys do that so that they can still kind of keep a little skin in the game but i don't really need it yeah okay yeah sweet it just sounds very corporate almost like private sector structured i guess kind of yeah yeah all right man so what's um so let's say you've you've just done your little stint out in the bush so to speak quiet town probably not much going on um tell me about when you get to your first big station and you start like hitting it off with the crooks and what kind of jobs are you getting yeah so i i worked in that place then i went to down the road part-time at a slightly bigger department but it was uh i was getting paid there still not a lot happening then part part-time at an another bigger place that that started you know that was a big um like retail area like it's the mall and where all the shops and everything are it's a it's an agency that has crime and has some things going on i never really got into anything there but i'm from canton ohio and that's the department i wanted to eventually i was testing at bigger cities and things like that um and the the problem is so i'm testing around 1994 95 that type of thing 5,000 people were coming to take those tests, right? So I remember um, Akron, Ohio PD, there was like 4,500 people that took the test and I got like a, a 97. The guy, the there was a guy that I knew that had a 97.5 and he was like 40 places ahead of me because there's so many people, you know? So it was it was tough to get to get on those big cities at the time. Now they've got a couple hundred people showing up. But... um. So I was testing there, and then I tested for Canton in 1995 and took a year to hire me from where I fell on the list, and um, I got hired there in May of 1996. Um, that was, you know, a, Canton is 180 guys. You know, we, some, we were close to 200 at one point, then we were down to like 140 when they were trying to balance the budget, and then they've been in the 170s and things like that. But there's like less than a hundred thousand people that live there in Canton, but it is a uh, crime infested dump. Like there's not much there for prosperity, crack, alcohol, just everyone's poor. Canton's it got a lot of crime, a lot of crime. So, I mean, right away, like immediately we're in foot chases, car pursuits, robberies, homicides, all that stuff. And like the first day I worked the road, like immediately. Yeah, so can you tell me like what's so you're chasing bad guys and you 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 know you're dealing with some dead bodies and that type of stuff? Is that a big shock to you straight away going in the street doing that? I tell you what was a shock to me. So I'm from Canton. I lived my whole life there. Now, granted, I lived in the northern part of the city. Um, 
uh, just a little quaint little neighborhood in there. We, you know, we saw a couple things here and there, but you know, not, nothing really. I didn't really see any crime that much when I was a kid, growing up or whatever. I remember driving around with the uh, the senior guy I was riding with the first day. I'm like, where the hell are we at? Like, we're in the city that I've grown up and lived my whole life, 26 years, minus a couple years in Myrtle Beach. I've never heard of this place, this housing project. Where are we at? Because, like, where I went is one high school, but where all these people grew up and lived was another high school inside the city, and we didn't really interact. There's no social media, so there's no interaction except for a football game or something. I don't know these people. I don't know where they're from. I don't know their fan. Nothing. And um, he's like, yeah, uh, white boy, you sh- there's no reason that you should have ever been over here to this neighborhood. Why would you know this? <laughs> I'm like, that's a good point. You know, so so anyways, they're just, you know, driving around and seeing all the blight and all the, you know, how people live and all that stuff that that stuff was just was kind of a shock you know i mean um definitely uh how horrible people are to to each other and you know you know i grew up in a house we didn't have my parents got divorced when i was uh in my early 20s but there wasn't fist fights or anything nothing like that we hadn't you know they just grew apart right and um there's there's none of that stuff, but then you go to these places where, you know, people who are married or live together and have kids are stabbing each other and, you know, physically assaulting and real horrible, horrible things, lighting shit on fire and just all kinds of stuff. So that part that part was kind of a, a sh- an eye opener. I just I dealt with it. And I, you know, just just got at it. Um, but it was uh, yeah, just how crappy that city actually was, was a shock. Cause I never saw any of that. My, then again, when I was a kid, I wasn't allowed to go past X street. You're not allowed to go down past that. Well, past that was shit, you know? And that's why I never saw it. Yeah. Probably a good thing, man. And I guess you probably look back and you go, ah, I didn't really think much at the time, but I guess that's why I wasn't allowed to. So that I wouldn't get stabbed and lit on fire. Um, but the one thing I, I, and I, I've never been a cop, um, but I've got a lot of friends who are cops. Domestic violence is, it just seems to be the thing. Like I've never, not really, I've never really seen that type of stuff, but how, why is it so prevalent? I just don't get it. Well, you have, you know, I mean, there's domestic violence in wealthy neighborhoods. There's, I mean, there's domestic violence in poor neighborhoods uh, more so than anything, I think, because, um, and, and it's me being a junior psychologist here, but they, from the million domestic violence calls I go on is, um, some people are together by, not by choice of at least one of them. Maybe a girl gets pregnant, the guy doesn't want, he's trying, he's doing whatever. Um, or in their circumstances, they're young and they have no money. And that's the big thing is these these folks are broke right and there's no like way out no perceived way out even if and all they know is their neighborhood their street the people there they know um you know the shitty situation they live in they accept gun violence they hear it and all that type of stuff but it's frustrating to those people and then they just can't live with another human being and then people are spiteful to each other 
And especially if they're not working, there's no outlet. They're just together all the time. And then the fighting starts. Um, alcohol is a big fuel for a lot of it. Uh, a huge fuel for a lot of the uh, domestic violence problems. Um, and then just people snap. Some people are just shitheads that are like men that are violent to women. It doesn't matter. Sometimes we we came across where guys just just snap and they just couldn't handle it anymore. Um, we saw we you know there's women that are violent towards men, not not as much obviously it's on the lower percentage, but uh, yeah they just I guess just being cooped up with another human being is too much for some folks. Yeah, so you think it's just a combination of different stresses almost like the layered stress sort of thing that you can talk about with dogs or the, you know, the whole cup analogy sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. There's just a lot of people, you know, we, we went to domestic calls, um, that were, you know, repeat offenders guys that, you know, and this is the thing, man, women will, will, uh, get with a guy who they know beat up other women and then they get beat up and there's, not, I don't know that they're all surprised about it, but they shouldn't be. You, you knew, you've known this this guy, you knew his girlfriend before, his wife or baby's mom, whatever, and, and he beat her up. What makes you think you're any different? But again, getting into human psychology, people people want to be loved, I guess, and they want somebody to you know be with, and um, and they make poor choices a lot of times. Yeah, and that that's what I what I mean when I say I've never really seen a lot of it. Um, purely by association, I've I've seen basically that same situation. Chicks going back to the the same fuckwit dude, um, and then same thing happens. And yeah, I guess it's that Stockholm syndrome, for lack of a better explanation. So yeah. Anyway, um, so in that time when you were just on the doing the patrol stuff, um, did you work any big jobs that were like massively massive on the news or or sort of like famous for lack of a better term? Uh, most of the things that I ever did in police work that were get made the news were stuff I did. Um, shootings. Um, I mean, there's some big drug cases I worked when I was undercover and working narcotics that, that made the news. But, um, yeah, I had a couple shootings at the job. I had a, uh, in custody death fighting a guy who was naked and, uh, it's called excited delirium, which we had never heard of that made, national news and that was uh i got protested against at the police department and all that type of stuff so yeah that was um other than that um nothing really nothing uh, it, it's it's strange man so canton canton is probably one of the violent crime wise for the size of the city one of the worst places in the united states robberies all, all, real bad burglaries a lot of physical violence and things like that but the homicide rate is actually relatively low, like 12 to 15 homicides a year in a city that the crime, the other violent crime would should make you believe that it would be 25 to 30 homicides a year. But for whatever reason, there's it's half that, which is cool. I mean, good. Please don't kill each other. Um, don't be trying to, you know, like Youngstown, Ohio. So people in Ohio, they hear Youngstown. They're like, oh, that place is a shithole. Youngstown is the same size as Canton, has all the same massive crime statistics, except for they have 20 some homicides a year for whatever reason. So when I was working the road, my whole time on the street, I only ever responded to like four or five homicides. 
like where people had gotten killed right there as the primary car. Um, maybe maybe half a dozen. That's it. That whole time was crazy. I, I mean, I responded to 6,000 shootings, you know, and all the other violent crimes that come. But with actual homicides, only like half a dozen. Yeah, okay. Yeah, interesting, man. And these um, – can we drill into those shooting incidents you were talking about? Like sure. what was the context around that? Um, so the yeah, first yeah. one – the first one was August of 1999. Um, I was working midnight shift uh, with back, and I think it's still the same way, but midnights was all two-man cars. So me and a guy, Joe, were working. And uh, we're working in the northeast end of the city. And um, they put out a call of a burglar, of a suspicious person, like walking around, looking at houses and things like that. Um, prowler they called it so we're we're out looking it's me and him and then there's another guy named lester who was there who's a canine guy so lester's there with his dog we're searching the area we don't find him right we don't see him so we're sitting in the street you know up like this so that i can i'm driving the cruiser and lester's got his car and we're just talking it's like just it's like two o'clock in the morning a little after 2 a.m and um 2 a.m. is bar closing time in Ohio. So we're, we're there, and they put out a, a, a 911 hang-up call at a bar in down, right down the road, maybe six, eight blocks down the road. Um, these, I, I had, That was my zone, so that area, I knew it really well. right? I had bid that zone for the last two years, so I, I knew that area. And I knew that that bar had been robbed already at closing time. So I said, that's a, that's a robbery. And we took off. So we're flying to get there. And sure enough, um, actually, I think I was the passenger then. But uh, sure enough, they, the dispatch tells us, hey, this is a robbery in progress. The, they dialed 911 on the phone and set it down on the bar. So you could hear, the dispatchers could hear the robbery going on in the background. Um, what had happened was the, the bar owner... And this is the second time this happened at that location and like the fifth time at other bars that he owns. Um, so the, the guy doing the robbery actually absolutely knew the guy, but he took the garbage out to the garbage to the dumpster and the guy was waiting behind the dumpster with a gun, ordered him back in, robbed him. Um, like I said, he had done that to him three or four times at different places. Um, so we're, we're there, I don't know, man, a minute, two minutes. And Lester with the dog is there. So when you pull up to the front of the bar, there's a door in the front. There's a door on the right side. And then there's windows and things on the left. So the, the canine guy goes around. He's trying to work his way around the back of the building on the left. Joe goes to the door in the front. I go around to the side where the, the, the other door is. As I walk around there, the, the doors open. And uh, can hear kind of music going on in there. And I hear some voices. I don't really know what's up. As I'm, and I have no cover. There's nothing there. I'm just out in the open. There is a, a, a truck or a van parked up against the building, but over further over to the right, I couldn't have got to. I guess I, I could have ran over there. But so I come around and I, I have my pistol out and I have it in one hand because I reach up to my mic to say I have an open door over here. And as I say the open door, the guy comes out of the bar wearing a ski mask has a backpack on, 
has the money bag, the deposit bag in one hand and the pistol in the other hand, just like, like a TV shit. And he he comes out, he comes out and him and I just lock eyes like shit. I'm probably 12 feet away from him. Something like that. Um, he raises the pistol, right? We had the uh, Smith and Wesson 4506s at the time. So they're far, 45 caliber. They had to, we had to, uh, they were double action first round, single action after that. You had to decock, you know, drop, drop the, the thing to drop the uh, hammer afterwards. So I move to my left and fire. And as soon as I fire, I slipped in the gravel and fell. So I fired and I'm staring, I'm on my back staring up at the sky like instantaneously. And um, I'm like, I'm expecting to see him just come over and execute me, you know, right, right, like there. But as soon as I hit, I look up, fuck, I jump up, jump up. He's laying down right outside the door. The money bag is off to the side and he doesn't have the gun in his hand and he's like patting around on the ground looking for it. I figure he's laying on it. He's looking, I'm yelling at, I start yelling at him. I look and see the gun has slidden underneath the, the van or truck or whatever that was over there. He's standing there and blood starts coming out of him. And I'm yelling, you know, about his hands. Don't reach for the gun. See your hands, see your hands, all this stuff. And he says, he, he goes, okay, okay. I won't, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not And blood, more blood starting to come out. And then he says, he looks up and he goes, help me. And then throws up all that dark blood like it looked like every every ounce of blood in his body came out of his mouth at that at that point and he was done um joe came running around i remember i told the decock story because i'm focused on this guy and i'm still in single action you know with my pistol pointed at him and joe comes running around decock 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 and uh so uh you know i decocked it holstered he goes up He's trying to handcuff the guy, and it's like one of those bellows, you know, with the air thing, like the, for a fireplace. He's he's putting his arms behind him, and then every time he does, more blood comes out, mouth and nose just pouring out, and it's a massive pile at this point, swimming in blood. And uh, what had happened was, I my round went through the right side of his chest, and then ricocheted over and s- severed his aorta, so that was Ooh. all that aortic blood, and um, he was dead, you know, in a minute. And, um, so yeah, that was, that was 1999. So Lester comes running around with the dog and then, you know, we got to get on the radio and get everybody to come out. We're on the far end of the city. And, um, so they came out, picked me up. They hadn't had a shooting in a couple of years. They acted, here's a weird thing, man. My entire time there at the police department, all the shootings that happened every time they acted like they had never done this before. And it's just because they had absolute garbage shitty leadership my entire time there like garbage so captain comes out they took my gun there this was the last time they did that they changed the policy after they took my gun um and then made me drive back in a marked police car with no gun so we we had to we had to get in our contract union contract that if you have another shooting that the brass has to replace your gun and give you so you're not without one driving through the crime infested city in a flipping police car with no gun. Right. So they went back, uh, they put me in the detective bureau room for a while. And then I had to go to the hospital uh, because I had to give, um, I I can't remember if they took blood or just urine, you know, they get a test to make sure you're not on drugs or alcohol. And, um, 
did that and gave my interview to internal affairs and all that stuff that night, that night or the morning next morning. Cause it was like two 20 in the morning when I shot him and, um, I was off. So this, this was funny. I was off, uh, just till Saturday. This was a Tuesday night. Uh, the pro so Canton, Ohio is home to the pro football hall of fame. The NFL's hall of fame is in the city. And there's a huge festival there every year. And for whatever reason, people wild out in that city during that week. And, uh, this was, the first night of that. And um, so I, I say that because for the next two or three years, every Hall of Fame, we've got like in a shooting or something weird happened. Um, but I, I remember our chief was ancient, ancient. And uh, he came in in the morning and he wanted to go talk to me. And uh, when I was leaving, he goes, you know, you can, you can take a couple days off if you want. I'm like, thanks, a couple days off. So I came back to work Saturday that week. It was like Wednesday morning when I shot him. I came back to work Saturday, back to the shift, back to the work, back to the street, doing whatever. Shit. So there's no, this is 1999, so there was no mental follow-up. There's no counseling. There's none of that, none. The, the Fraternal Order Police had a, sh a shoot team that came down to, to talk to me, and uh, the, and the, uh, Brass kicked him out of kicked him out of the police department. The fuck out of here. We don't need to talk to nobody. That type of thing. Yeah. So I'm kind of picking up a couple of things there. Obviously, like the way you tell that story, you, you it sounds like you've a. It sounds like you probably told that story a couple of times. I imagine whether on podcasts or conversations or whatever, because you, you you seem quite comfortable talking about it. You're not you don't look uncomfortable to me. Um, right. Yeah. So in my head, I assume that you've worked through that, right? That you've sort of come to terms with it and it's just part of your history. And yeah. Yeah. Just, uh, you know, the funny thing is I tell people when you get hired at a police department or when you're going through the hiring process, they always ask, um, do you believe you could use deadly force if needed? Could you take another person's life? And every single person says, yes, of course. You have yeah. to, right? But you don't know. You really don't know that you could until you have to. And there are guys, there was a guy, he, he was a patrolman around this time and a little couple years after that, and then he started getting promoted, and he became chief. And the fact that he never got killed on the street is amazing to me because he had numerous shoot-don't-shoot shoot situations that he should have shot the person, and he didn't and got lucky and it was because he he ran through his mind that he was going to get sued. I was like, Bruce, if, if you're worried about getting sued when a guy is four feet away from you with a knife coming at you, you're fucked in your head. You're thinking the wrong thing. But in reality, that might have been what he was thinking. But he just couldn't do it. He, he talked a good game, but he couldn't do it. Um, used to be when, when, I, um, when they hired new people, because they always hired people that had already been through the academy. So if they hired, say, six, eight people, six of them already had the, ac the academy, two they had to put through the academy. Maybe they were working part-time like I was other places. Um, the Friday before they would hit the street, I would always go have a talk with them. And um, there was a guy, Dan, who got into a fight with a dude, and the dude tried to kill him, and Dan had to pop his eyeball out to keep him from getting his gun out of his holster. Dan would come and tell that story. 
then I would tell my stories and then I and I would explain to them. I'd make the supervisors have to leave and everything like that. I'm just going to talk to these guys. And I would tell them, you know, listen, if you've never been punched in the face, you're going to get punched in the face probably within your first month. If you're if you've never been, this stuff is going to happen to you. This isn't some ritzy town. This is a violent place. And um, I actually got two people to quit. Uh, a guy, a guy and a girl on two, two different occasions never came back. Um, but th that's the point. That was why I would tell them. And I would say, listen, if you get sh quickly here, you get to a point where you can't like, th you don't want to do this. Like, this isn't what you thought it was going to be. Quit, leave, please. Nobody will think anything of you. Move on, do something else. But if you are a coward and you're going to stay here and risk everybody's life, I'm going to tell everybody that you're a coward. And I'm going to fuck with you nonstop because you shouldn't be here. You got to go. But I told them, if you shoot somebody and you can't handle that, it does, that does not make you a coward. You've never, you've never done this. You know, this was, you know, the early 90s, early 2000s. We still weren't getting guys coming back that had been to combat. You know, we, we didn't have any of that in the beginning, early on. No, nobody here had seen combat. You know, we had guys that were in the original, you know, invasion of Iraq that, that never shot or anything like that. And we had some guys that did, but people don't know. And just because you think you can doesn't mean you can. But if you're just a bitch who pulls off to the side of the road to let other guys get to that hot call before you do, you got to go. You need to go do something else. And that's why those two people quit. There was a guy, he, he left UPS to, or FedEx to come work for us. He went back to FedEx. And then the girl, she said, this wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And she got quit altogether. I'm like, good, good. Because you probably saw this in the military. Well, I don't know about where you were at, but we got guys on the department that have been there 20, say 20 years, and they've been miserable since their second year. And it's like, <laughs> you are a miserable human being to be around. You smoke eight packs of cigarettes a day. You look like shit. You, you're going to be dead two years after you retire. Why did you stay here? You know what I mean? But it's government jobs, man. Yes. Yeah. Guaranteed salary and benefits. That's why they do it. 100%, man. And, and you're right. Like, even in a unit like mine, even the, the over in Perth, like, you'll still get the occasional guy like that. Just, just that crusty old dude that, you know, has been in the unit for however long. Um, and that that needs to go, and that mm -hmm. won't be won't do so well when they leave. But like I, I like all what you just said, man. And and it might sound harsh, but I mean, look, our audience is all police, military, right? So it's not like we have to justify any of that to them. Mm. But um, I, I think that's probably that's that's a good mindset to have because you're like, you join this job to do some potentially real fucking nasty shit, and if you can't do it then you shouldn't be here but if you do do it and, it and it affects you then you know that's all part of the human process and you've just got to work through that so i think it's yeah i think that's a good i like the way you sort of wrap that up like yeah this might suck and if you're not ready for it fuck off but if you're ready for it and it happens and it's not what you thought it was go and get yourself right because that's that's just all part of the process yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. It's um, Joe that was with me that day. He got treated like a piece of shit back at the police department. Like they locked him in 
uh, the same interview rooms that we put mopes in and people are pissing and shitting in and, you know, guys that have just killed babies and shit, they're in those same fucking rooms. And they put him in there. I didn't know any of this was happening. I was at the hospital. And uh, when I get back, the union president and the captain are in a screaming match, fighting, trying to unlock the door to get him out. Why are you doing that to him? He's just the guy riding with the guy. You know what I mean? But when I got back to the police department, I they put me in a different room. And uh, they they were okay to me. They were, they treated me okay during that one. Um, not They did not treat Joe okay. He was treated like a, a goof. And that changed a bunch of policies because that, but it was a, it was a pissing contest between the union president and the captain who was a big jerk off. And, uh, he wasn't gonna, wasn't gonna bow down. Neither was the union president. Like they knew each other for 30 years. They're going to fist fight in there over that. Yeah. So it, that, that's the stuff that screws with people. You know what I mean? That part. Why, why, why do that? Why'd they do that to him? You know what I mean? He did not. He wasn't even on the shooting. He didn't pull the trigger. You know what I mean? And they they treat treat him like he was uh, an accessory to murder or some shit. Why? Like, what what was the decision point? Who went? I mean, yeah, it had nothing to do with Joe. Nothing to do with Joe. It had everything to do with the the union president who had been there a long time. Was a very strong personality. The captain was one of the most arrogant people I've ever met. And they just he was he was. Um, you know, uh, casualty of war, basically. Yeah. I'm also picking up a theme here, um, Eric. What's <laughs> You'll your... hear me say it a lot. <laughs> no, look, man, I'm kind of the, I'm the same, right? I've got, <clears throat> I've got massive issues with, you know, the some of the culture and the leadership stuff that I saw in defense. Um, but my, my thing is that, yeah, it's fucked. Like the system is fucked. You're going to get treated like shit. The rules are stupid, da, da 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 whatever. But it's on us as individuals and us as a community to, I mean, a tr- look, try and fix it, but to take care of each other and, and ourselves because the system's not going to do it, not properly anyway. And yeah, it sounds um, like you've kind of got yeah, the nobody same leaves mentality. law enforcement because of the work. Not, I shouldn't say nobody. Most people do not get out because of the work. It's the administrative stuff that drives them insane. Um, most police, because I travel all over the United States training dog guys and dealing with the administrations. Most police administrations absolutely suck. They're <laughs> filled. They're filled with cuckold little weirdos that um, <laughs> do nothing. Do nothing but bully, rank bully people. Because once you make rank in most places, you cannot be fired. You can't, they'll never discipline you. There's nothing you can do. And you have a captive audience. And so you can treat people like shit. And there's not much recourse for the Joe Schmo bottom guy, right? You, because you're a lieutenant, that must mean you know what the F you're doing. But most places, police administration are horrible people. Guys that sucked as cops took inside jobs so they could study at work for the police test, for the promotion test. And then they, then their leadership style is bullying. Um, definitely get backs from people they don't like retribution, playing favorites, a lot of that stuff. If they didn't like you as a patrolman and you guys never got along, you can be guaranteed. They were going to try to screw with you once they get a little bit of power. And most Police administration people were never in the military. 
they um they they just are are goofs absolute goofs and uh, rank bullying is is a big thing it's a big thing you have to do it because i got you know and there is zero recourse for most people and it and it just takes <clears throat> they're designed to take good cops and run them run them out make them leave man i'll tell you i was at that like i said i was at that scent detection thing last week and there was there's a bunch of um guys i used to work with still in who were there attending with with work and then there was a bunch of guys that were out who were now private industry and i was saying to a couple of them i'm like these some of these departments these these agencies whatnot they treat people like shit they have these shitty cultures terrible leadership you know all the other reasons that you make you want to leave we leave we then use the same attributes and skills that they originally selected us for. We then take it to private industry. We take what they taught us and then we sell it back to them at exorbitant private industry prices. But if I hadn't had shit experiences with, with you know, I mean, mine was a little bit different. It was mostly my personal stuff. But if I hadn't been super jaded and, and left the military, the way that I did, I'd still be in there. I'd still be in there collecting a paycheck. There'd be no origin canine that I wouldn't be selling some cool gear to people. I'd just be there collecting a paycheck doing the job. So that sort of stuff blows my mind, man. Yeah. And I, I tell these guys, man, you know, once I got older at the police department, got a lot of seniority, I could just say what I wanted basically. Cause I didn't care. <laughs> and I would tell these guys, I knew these guys, man. I knew them my whole career. I'm like, just treat the guys like adults. Treat them like freaking like a guy who's done a thousand calls. He doesn't need you. So I used to tell the sergeants, like sergeants would come to my call and I go, why are you here? Who called you? I didn't ask for you. I don't need you here. You can go. And I said, <laughs> I, I've done this thousands of times, thousands. You have not because you're a goof and who took an inside job and study for tests and doesn't do shit. I'll call you when I need you. But when I call you, it's because I need you. And you need to come and do stuff. Because we police departments, there's a lot of guys listening to us going, Oh yeah, yeah, I, I can relate to that. And they'll be like, I'll call this I'll call the shift sergeant because I need an opinion on something and he'll just not come. Or why? Over the radio. Go to channel two. Why? Why do you need me to get off my ass and come out there? You know, that type of stuff. And it's crazy. That that stuff gets super frustrating, especially if you're a passionate person like me who is trying to do the work, you know, and, and trying to be, um, you know, trying to help people, trying to do something. Because I'll be honest with you, in police work, uh, you're not helping too many people. Um, you don't – it's rare that you get a chance to actually help somebody. Now, yeah. you might be helping a victim by arresting the person who victimized them, but usually you're just – you're just going after shitheads and putting them in jail. That's uh, that's the main thing. You're you're as a detective. A lot of times, maybe you can help some people solve some things. You know, there's some jobs in in law enforcement, but regular street guys, you're not you're not helping a ton of people. You know, so but you're trying. You know what I mean? Even even the shit ass neighborhoods, man, with people that hate you. I always worked in those areas because a it was I like to run and gun. I'm a type A personality. I'm adrenaline junkie. I like to go do this, this, and this, and, and get going. I liked all that chasing and all that stuff. 
Um, but there are good people that live in those areas, and I am trying to, you know, keep people out of there climbing through their fucking windows, you know, and stealing their crap. Um, thieves are the worst, man. People that just go out and steal stuff. I, you're a special kind of piece of shit, you know. Just leave people stuff alone. But um, so, anyways, that's that's that. You want to do the other? We can talk about the other stuff too if you want. The other shooting, you mean? Or yeah. Th- there's there's things before that leading up to that. There's a whole bunch of stuff if you want, or or if you have more questions. Oh, mate, send it, man. I, I, I'd love to hear that. But um, oh, look, definitely tell me, and then then I want to get onto some of your SWAT and some of your dog stuff too. Just because okay. I'm conscious of time, I know that um, we both got a couple of places to be after this. So yeah. Um. So I go. I'm working the road from '96 to 2001. In 2001, I get picked for the our, in at our place. It was called Vice. It's the uh, narcotics unit. I'm in narcotics from one to 05. I come out in, I think like February or March of 05. Back to the road, and um, working afternoon shift, I think. And uh, that's the year we got tasers, right? So we just we just got tasers that year, and um, we come out. I'm working with a guy named Bill, and um, we're driving. I'm working over in the normal zone that I always bid every year. And uh, they sent us to the other side of the city for a guy. The call comes in as a guy um, running into traffic and getting hit by cars. That was it. And I think they told us he was naked, I think, on the way there. So it takes us five minutes to get over there. When we get over there, they said the uh, – the fire department was already on scene. So we, we, I'm driving. And at the time, only the passenger, only one person in the car could have the taser. We didn't have enough. So in a two man car, I didn't have it. Bill had the taser, had not tased anybody or anything like that. So I'm driving down the road. I see down the road, the lights and siren or lights from the ambulance and the fire department. I'm like, Oh shit, that must be where they're at. I'm figuring they're down there with the guy who got, hit by like three cars turns out they were down there with an older lady who was in pure panic mode because this guy had been jumping on the hood of her car right um so they said uh bill goes you passed him i never even saw this guy you passed him so i stop i turn around open the door i turn around look and there's a guy he's about 10 15 feet away um it's a um he's like Six two two fifty. This I'm five eight, and I was probably one seventy then. And um, I turn around; he's completely naked, got big dreads hanging down, kind of look like the Terminator, completely naked, covered in blood. And he just comes. I go, and you can hear on the video. I say, "Hey, man, what's going on?" That's all I got. And he was coming at me fast. So I we had freaking pepper spray at the time i pulled pepper spray out blast him in the face he wipes it off and then jumps at me so i we had done a little bit of ground fighting um we kind of learned guard position a little bit you know not a lot but a little bit so i laid back across in the seat of the cruiser lay back across the seats i got my knees up under me and he jumps in on top of me so he him and i are fighting in the car He's covered in sweat and blood. And I remember 
get grabbing the grabbing my radio and saying send us help um that was off i was telling talking to nobody my radio wasn't even on and um bill bill takes him a minute to get around to the other side and i'm yelling to tase him tase him tase him and you hear the taser go off in the video i could and i could hear the guy's laying on top of me i'm punching him he's raining blows down on me from in this tight confined space and um dripping blood in my face and my mouth and everything and I hear him get hit and he goes, he just starts, ah, like that. And he tenses up real high, sits up. It's real tense. Five seconds is how long the taser is going to roll, right? Five seconds. Ted tenses up, tenses up, comes down. Right as he comes down, he looks, I see him look at my holster. And I'm like, oh shit. And we both go for it at the same time. So he's got two hands on it and he has leverage. All he has to do is pull, you know, and I'm trying to, hold it in there we had shitty holsters back then i think we only had like a thumb break there was no safety holsters allowed any of that shit so my i'm losing this fight he's getting tased again by the way right and he's he's uh the he's going i love you i love you i love you over and over again that's all he's saying is i love you i love you and he gets the gun out of the holster right and i'm holding it down kind of like in the floor area i'm just pushing and holding on and he's i'm losing this this fight and he's coming up and i get my other hand on it and he's covered in blood and it slips his hand slips off the gun i put it up come up to his head just about to kill him in the car as soon as i go to pull the trigger he vanishes now also this is he's in the middle of his third tasing on this time he's running he's riding it three times he vanishes what happened was Bill and a fireman grabbed his legs and pulled him off of me in the car. So he comes out, lays on the ground. I jump up, holster, jump on top of him. He's going, I love you. I love you. I love you. If people, they'll see my name in your thing. If they Google it or on YouTube, I think you can see the, and listen to this uh, in-car camera video. Uh, we didn't have body cams or anything like that. Um, so you'll see when we're fighting the cars rocking back and forth, you can't really see what's going on. He gets out. I jump on top of him. He's just laying there. Bill's holding the taser. He's, I love Bill to death. He's not that guy, right? He, he was never, he got into a little bit of stuff from just from working the streets in Canton, but he was never that guy. So he's just like, holy shit. Fireman's standing over there, which he should. He did what he, he helped me and he bailed out. So I jump up. I get a cuff on the guy. I'm waiting for him to come to life, get another cuff on him. And I get up on his shoulder and I turn his head sideways. So he kind of misaligns his, his spine there. So he can't get up. He jumps up and pops me off of him like nothing. Boom, right up off of him. And, and that's when, if you watch the YouTube videos, there's another cruiser pulling in and his video picks up and you see me pile drive him back down onto the ground. You see me, him kick me off. I pile drive him back down on the ground. I got him on his side. He got, he got Bill's drive stunning him with the taser, but he's not doing it right. He drive stunned him like 11 or 13 times. I can't remember. Um, what does that mean? Sorry, dry, dry stunning? Uh, you, take the, you take the taser on the end of it. You touch their skin with it, and oh, you can get contact that way. It's, it's a way if you were too close to fire off the, the, ta- the, you know, the things that come out, you touch them with it. Um, and if only one of your prongs hits the guy, you can also make that connection by touching him with the, the other, you know, with the front of the taser anyways. So 
he's on the ground. I'm up by his head and I got him on his side. So his kind of legs are twisted, but his chest is not on the ground. He's on his side and he keeps trying to get up and then he calms down and we didn't know, you know, there's still, I still don't think they teach defensive tactics very well there, but that we had these nerve hits, this brachial stun thing that was called. And I'm trying to basically stun this guy and I'm telling him to stop, just stop. And I'm, what I'm waiting on is him to chill out so the fireman can come scoop him up and we got to get him to the hospital. Like I said, completely naked, blood everywhere, and sweat like you wouldn't believe. It was, it was warm out, but um, so he finally stops fighting me and we get the backboard under him in about two seconds and off he goes. So I'm there by this time, the whole shift is there, supervisors, everybody, and they tell me he died. And the hospital is only four blocks, literally four, four or five blocks away. He didn't even make it. He died on the way there. And I'm like, well, that's on him. Nothing, nothing to do with me. Yeah, and um, I figured he just, is, he something with drugs or I, you know, overdose. Maybe I had no idea. We, the di- the coroner's ruling on it was um, uh, excited delirium. Now we had never heard of excited delirium at our department. I, at the time, it was big out west, the Pacific Northwest, and parts of California, and some places in Canada had a bunch of cases on it. And um, so basically, his his uh, heart had exploded for the most part. He was 108, 109 degrees, his body temperature. And even like four hours after he was dead, he was still like 106. Um, and then there's a thing that used to be called cocaine psychosis. I, of course, have done massive amounts of research on this. It used to be called cocaine psychosis, uh, and it was caused by people that used cocaine. Um this guy didn't use cocaine. His problem is he was a paranoid schizophrenic that wasn't taking any of his medication. And his body just killed him. But these people that go through these excited delirium uh, situations, all of them get naked because they're, they're on fire, basically. They all have a weird thing with uh, glass. So they all smash out their mirrors in their houses and smash out the windows in their houses. Um, all of them do this. It's it's if you catch him at the right, if you come across the guy and he's naked at that point, he's probably gonna die, and then now you're fucked because you're stuck with this death in custody, death, you know that was inevitable anyways. Um, and they have a fascination with water. They cover, they throw water all over the place in their house, probably because they're on fire. But this guy had been going through this all day, and this is the problem with with hood neighborhoods. No one called the police. Nobody. All day, he he took his arms and he broke out all the windows in his house and then raked them with his arms. So that's why he was cut and bleeding everywhere. Kicked him out with his feet, cut his legs open all day long. I, I'm telling you this: we have this call at like eleven o'clock at night. This started at like noon. His his baby's mama left the house because he was throwing water on her, telling her that he was cleansing her and things like that. She left, never fucking told a soul, never called his family. Never told anybody, never called law enforcement and just let this brew a whole day. And then what he, why we got called is he came out into the street and as the cars were coming to 30 miles an hour, he was running full speed and diving headfirst into their front windshield. Wow. There was head prints busted up and then he would get knocked out and then get up, shake it off and turn and run and smash into the next car. 
And then the old lady, he smashed into her car and then got up and just jumped up and down on the hood of her car. That probably, that probably, that poor lady, that affected her forever, the rest of her life. I, I doubt she's even alive still. Um, so that's when we, you know, that's when they call us, when all that stuff's happening. So he's in the middle of this huge psychotic event. And, um, but that then ended up kind of really the beginning of the downside of my desire to do the job. So this is 05, summer of 05. They put me off. Oh, I, I came back to work the next day, by the way. I worked the next day. So they'd never dealt with anything like this. Um, my, my, there was blood in my socks, my underwear, down my tear ducts, in my mouth. All my clothes were soaked with it and everything. I just went and I think they, I think they took my stuff, but I, I'm not sure. I may have washed it. I don't remember. Um, and then uh, I come back to work the next day. But here's the, here's the, this is the why I hate admins. So I was on the union board at the time. I was the treasurer, right? And we're in the middle of contract negotiations. And we, our chief was an absolutely horrendously horrible human being. Like just a, not a, just a bad chief and a bad cop, a bad guy. And um, he had just become chief. He was headhunting, going after guys. He, um, and we, we had kind of put some things in the newspaper about him, our union did. And um, I did not like him. I didn't get along with him at all. He puts me, he calls me into his office and puts me off on administrative leave the next day. And which they should have done, you know, in all fairness, in the night that this happened. So they put me off on leave. Um, it's about a week later. I'm off. I get a phone call from the union president, John. He goes, get this shit. He goes, I just got a phone call from the prosecutor who said McKim, that Dean McKim was the chief's name. Fuck you, Dean. So if you're listening to this, um, <laughs> he said, he said, just so you know, chief McKim brought murder charges over to our office on your, on Eric today and Bill and two other guys that happened to be there just to hold the guy's legs down when they, when they got there, he goes, but for sure, Eric, they, he, he brought murder charges over here, wants us to take murder to the grand jury on him. And I, we said, what'd you do? He goes, I told him, get the fuck out of my office. First of all, the investigation isn't even done yet. And go fuck yourself. Get out of here. So then, like, a week later, two weeks later, I'm at a golf outing for the canine. Because I had gotten selected for canine. I just didn't have a dog, didn't have a class yet. I was just waiting. So a few weeks later, next month or whatever, I'm at a golf outing for the canine unit, and there's a captain there who I really liked. This captain was a good dude. He ultimately, uh, I, he ended up dying um, from a accidental uh, pill interaction overdose thing. I, I think it was probably suicide, but um, he told me at the thing that he overheard the chief and the head of IA, who was his buddy, talking about, um, I finally got one of those union guys. I finally got him. So because I was in contract negotiations, which was very contentious, because in the contract negotiations, there's no rank. So I would call him that guy, you, hey, you, no sirs, no chiefs, nothing. McKim, I call him by his last name because he was a scumbag. And um, he, uh, he was going to use 
this to try to get back at me for that and charge me with murder. So I was off for that whole summer. I learned to flip uh, on a wakeboard because I live at a lake. I, but it was very stressful. They were trying to come after me for murder. So at the end of the summer, it finally goes to the grand jury, and I'm cleared, and I'm back to work right away. Um, that's 05. And then 08, the family filed a $20 million lawsuit against me, Taser, the city, three other guys that were there, a bunch of things, the um, chief personally. So he gets let out of it. Taser, of course, has an army of attorneys. They get let out of it. There was an ATF agent. The federal government gets let out of it. So then in the end, the only people still in this lawsuit are the city and the four of us. And the judge didn't give us what's called qualified immunity, which means we're acting under the color of law, so they can't get any damages from us. He was a judge from our area, hates us, and said, nah, this is just another Canton PD case. I, I'm not letting these guys out. So when we finally went to trial, my um, whole house, my whole life, my whole pension, future, everything was up for grabs in this lawsuit. And, but as you can imagine, my um, desire to ever deal with police administration was ruined. And I stayed 13 more years <sighs> dealing with that. And he, let me explain, let me explain to something to you about what, what I was like as a cop. I'm a patrolman. I was a patrolman my whole career. I don't tell on people. I, no, you know, people's personal life, none of that shit's any of my business. I don't give a fuck what you do. I'm not your relationship police. I don't care. I took secrets. I'll take secrets to my grave. During this entire thing, I knew something about Dean McKim that would destroy his life would have ruined his life. And even when he was trying to get me for murder, I never told anybody. I still have never told anybody what that secret is. And um, because it's just not, I'm not like that. But he had to get on board when we went to the lawsuit. You know, he actually turned around and was real decent during the law, during the lawsuit, sat up there for every, there was one day he wasn't allowed in because he was going to be a witness. But, um, he sat in there and, and was very supportive and helped us because we, we had to live up in Cleveland, which is about an hour away, live at a hotel for about two weeks during this whole lawsuit. In the end, we won. The four of us won because they said we strangled the guy or that we suffocated him. The, um, the, all the medical experts said we did not suffocate him, that, cause, especially because his chest wasn't on the ground. Um, so, but they dinged the city for $1.8 million for failing to train us how to handle an excited delirium case. It was just a, it was a sympathy verdict. The, their, their attorneys took half of that. It sounds like a, who's that fuckhead that, um, uh, George Floyd or whatever his name was. Yeah. It sounds like the same sort of thing. I mean, I don't understand yeah. the full context of that particular one, but. From what I've well, the thing with George, the George Floyd is that guy sat on that dude's neck and he killed him. Oh, Us, you can <laughs> see, I'm laying on the ground. I'm laying on the side. Nobody's putting any pressure on this guy. Nothing. He just his his heart exploded. Um, but there, what what it is is there's an attorney out of Detroit, Michigan, who hates cops. He'll he'll support any cop killer, anybody. He took this lawsuit. They got 1.8 million. He took 900 thousand dollars of this money. Wow. 900 thousand dollars. He um. The uh, it was the guy who died, uh, Sean Pierlozzi, his brother, Troy, is the one who sued us. And Troy, since he, he drank himself to death, he, he got one hundred thousand dollars out of the settlement and 
blew through it in two, three months. Um, uh, Sean's kids got a couple hundred thousand out of it. But um, yeah, so that was a horrendous time in my life. The, the cool thing is as soon as, as soon as I got back to work in 05, after my uh, grand jury cleared me, I started canine school like the next week. Yeah. All right. So it was, oh, I, I want to get into the canine stuff, but I just want to cap <laughs> this one off. Um, you, 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 you've had Gary Hicks from um, Worthless Handler on your show, yeah. haven't you? Yep. Yeah. Did they have he to take fired that because board? of us. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I uh, I was gonna have him. I was asked. I asked him if he wanted to come on this podcast, but he said, "Oh, look, I just got to be careful with the department and whatnot." And I was like, "All good, man. No stress." No, I didn't know about that stuff that happened with with your podcast. So, um, yeah. So what what happened there? Because I mean, I'm sure he's probably got similar opinions to you from what I can gather. Yeah. He so he came on the podcast. We didn't say his name. We didn't say the agency that he worked for, and we did not even say the state that he worked in. And within hours of the podcast coming out, his canine sergeant took it to the police, police chief, and they fired him. He worked yeah. in a in a state where you could you have no representation. I think he sued him. He got some money back or something. But they took his car, his dog, and everything right then on the spot, yeah. and uh, fired him. So he ended up moving and finding a department that you know supports him and is. Is real nice. He loves the people he works for now, but he was just on our podcast uh, from a seminar in, in called Blue Line. He was at Blue Line. We did like a thirty minute episode with him, but he had to get you know super levels of of approval from his department. And we still, again, didn't. I don't think we said his name on there either. We said Worthless Handler. Uh, we didn't um, talk about where he works, uh, anything like that. But it's that's the thing. This sergeant didn't like him. So he used his rank to get him fired. And the chief didn't like him either. So Yeah. The the name Worthless Handler came because that chief put in an email, hashtag worthless handlers. <laughs> Piece yeah. of shit. Yeah. Uh, that's look, that's partly why I do what I do with the businessman, because um I think canine's one of those things that's it's easy to blow off until you need it. And then you really fucking need it. Um, and even, even my unit, man, like we never validated the capability overseas, but our sort of partner unit over in Perth, they did. So I think they probably had a, a little bit of a different appreciation that we did, for example. But I mean, cops, you guys, you know, finding grubs, jumping over fences, tracking people through the bush, finding lost autistic kids. I mean, the dogs are just so invaluable, but they still want to treat you like shit and shun you. It just, yeah, it's sort of. Yeah, the weirdest thing, man, is is uh, so there's all these um, police departments. Their their tra- their groups of handlers have five hundred one c three charity groups to help raise money to pay for all the canine stuff because the departments will not pay for it. Now you get every once in a while you get a department that fully funds everything is super supportive. Those guys are great, but most departments won't do it because the they know that the handlers will do it, will pay out of pocket for stuff. So you, you form these, but my, I laugh because there's no such thing as a 501c3 to raise money for SWAT. The SWAT teams get everything they want, all they have to ask for. And most of them, 99% of SWAT teams are never used. They don't do shit, nothing. They're part-time teams 
that do three or four call-outs a year, but they've got four can nods, all the rifle shit they want, all the kit, everything they need, all the ammo, and then the canine guy, all he needs is a new leash, and they will not buy it for him. They will not. They must fundraise to pay for the dog and the car. And they'll say, well, it's so expensive. You just bought a fucking bear armored truck for $200,000 that will get used five times a year. This guy handles 20 calls a day with this dog. But he had to buy his e-collar out of his own pocket. So people are like, you'll see on some of these forums, people are like, uh, I, we need to start a canine unit or this and that, but... The department has no money. It's a low budget. And I said, bullshit. They all have money. They all have lots of money. It's priority. It's just priority. They all got these fancy new rifles that they never use. Ever. Never, ever. But the dog will find 10 guys a month. And will do 20, 30 alarm calls a day. And all this other stuff. But they got to fund everything. It's poisonous in this country with this stuff it's it seems like it's similar here man like you constantly have to be justifying i mean you know my career as a handler was kind of short-lived but um even in that time there was there was always a lot of selling that was happening with that type of stuff and it seems like i think that the cops are much better from what i can gather because people can see their value all the time they see them tracking crooks or finding bombs or whatever um, particularly up here in Queensland, um, the state guys here, they have a really, really good culture, um, for, at least from my perspective from as an outsider. Good culture, man. They're mm. always looking to push the capability. We had a couple of guys, I'll say we, a couple of mates of mine went over there for that tactical conference. I forgot the name of the fucking yeah. thing. Yeah, oh, just recently? Yeah. Yeah, ATAC, yeah. Was, was that it? Yeah, yeah. AT, it's called A, ATK9. Tactical Australia. Yeah, and it was, it was in <laughs> Indiana at a place called Muscatatuck. It's a pretty cool place. It's a good group. Yeah, I think that was it. Yeah, so. But, um, yeah, anyway, it's really, it was really cool. Um, So, now that you're... Um, oh, by the way, do I need a blanket, Gary Hicks, that fit in the name? Or is that sort of public knowledge? No, I think he's all right. I think he's good. Yeah, sweet. I'll probably send him a text anyway, a message. Um, so once you've once so you've just had this really shitty period with the department, and you're starting to get probably a bit jaded, and then you go straight into canine. Can you give us a bit of a rundown of how that transition went, and then what it was like starting canine? Yeah, so I get I get picked in 05. Um, then the the uh, excited delirium case happens. I'm off for a couple months, and then the class starts when I get back. Um, there was two of us, me and a guy named Chris in the class. And then there was a couple guys from other departments in the class as well. Uh, Canton basically trains everybody in the area and they don't charge them. So you got to pay for your dog, go get your dog and then come here and you can train with us for free. Uh, what, what Canton gets out of it is, is mutual aid help when they need it. Hey, call over there. Cause we, our dog guys are on vacation. We don't have a dog call over there and, and get him. See if, see if that department can send a guy. Um, and they like being the, you know, the regional training of the whole area. So, cause when I eventually took over as head trainer, we had 30, Canton had seven dogs, but we had 38 or 39 in the training group from as far away as two hour drive, they would come up. So 
So I get in at 05. Um, my first dog was a female shepherd named Gina. Now, they sent me and Chris, who don't know shit, with this sergeant who, in my opinion, didn't know shit. He thinks he did. He's a dog guy, but he, he wasn't a sergeant then. He was just a regular dog guy. Send us to go to this vendor to look at dogs, right? I don't know what I'm looking for, but we, they take him with us. In what I know now, he didn't know anything anyways. But we end up selecting Gina, who was a female shepherd, three-year-old female for me, and um, Zeke, this uh, 10-month-old shepherd puppy for Chris. And um, Zeke went on to have probably one of the best careers I've ever heard of in canine, ever. Like 175 street bites. He was a dual-purpose explosive dog. He had actual live find device finds, tons of stuff like that. He found a device and bit the guy who put it out in the same call. Like he had nine bites in a week with like three bites from a Chris tracked a stolen car, bit a guy, handcuffed him to the fence, track, bit the other guy, handcuffed him to the fence. So the guys behind him are just seeing dudes in laying in waist tied to fences. <laughs> Bits the third guy like a great flipping career, man. With that dog. That's sick. Me and Gina had, I worked her for three years. We had 20 plus failures to engage every year for three years. Probably at least 70 failures. Dude. And I've never, ever heard of anyone in the history of canine who's had as many failures as I did with that dog. To show you how busy Canton is. 20-some a year should have been bites that she didn't bite. The first year out, I tased 17 people that she should have bitten, and probably another 20 got away. She just wouldn't bite. But they didn't care. Didn't care at all. Did she track? Oh, oh she would track, find the guys like a champ. But would not bite them. She would look at their equipment. You know, she, was a, she would have been a good competition dog, like a, a Schutzen-type dog. She would have been decent at that. Good with the sleeve. But our training was very... Old school, we never used bite suits. It was just, you know, everything I know now, I could have picked that out pretty quickly. You know, good at finding dope, put a lot of people in prison with drugs, but would not bite anybody. And um, they wouldn't help me, though. Like, the guys, the guys would help me. They would reenact scenarios, and they would help me and help me. But the brass would not. They didn't care. I'm telling you, they didn't care if I got hurt or killed. They didn't care because it was... No use of force report if she didn't bite him, right? One less piece of paper on their watch. And I still think that the chief was still the same guy, and I still think there was a little bit of that from, from previous there. He didn't care. Like, I would beg them. I'm going to get killed with this dog. Oh, well, we're not spending any more money. We will not replace your dog because it costs money. So three years into it, um, the vice president of our union is a canine guy. He becomes the president, which is darn near a full-time job. He has to get out of the canine unit. And he has to get into a job at the department that has a little more flexibility. So he's working a dog named Willie, who had about 50 street bites at the time. And Willie was a bad motherfucker. And I, I called a meeting, and I said to the trainer, Gary, and Bill, and the chief was there, and I said, can I have Willie? I'll retire Gina. It's no money. Give me Willie. And I made a deal with Bill when, because Willie was five at the time. I said, when he retires, he can come back and live with you if that's what you want. 
because he had kids, you know, they loved him and everything like that. So they agreed. And um, so we retired Gina, and Gina was only six at the time. She lived to be 13, I think. She had two bites her whole time, both were my daughter. She bit my daughter in the leg and bit her in the rib cage. I was going to um, ask if she did have yeah. any live bites at all. Nope. Yeah, my kid. Uh, snow, uh, sled riding down the driveway, Gina, Gina bit her in the ribs, and then riding a scooter around just ran over and randomly bit her in the thigh. She was in grade school then, and, uh, you know, like she was like seven, <laughs> some shit like that. But anyways, so I get I do a quick little five-week familiarization school with Willie, and we come out on the street, and I worked him for three years and had 77 bites with him. Yes. Um, I came out, and for the first 89 days, I was on the gang task force, and I had, in those three months, like 26 apprehensions. Like, we were biting a lot of people. Um, and so we rock and rolled, and I worked him till he was eight. Now, he, he had time left in him. He would have been good. But they made me retire him because they, at the end of my time with Willie, I became the head trainer. And I was going to put on a class for a couple of guys. And they're like, listen, if you want a dog for Willie, you have to do it now. And I'm like, otherwise, you might never get another dog. So they had a dog. And th this was the whole reason. They had a dog that they had gotten for free and were kenneling it at a guy's house. And they wanted that dog because he was free to work. So I had to retire Willie, who was a true apex predator, a 1% dog. And they gave me this black shepherd named Zeus, who, uh, because he was free, we had to use him. And I used, I had Zeus. We went through training. And, and I worked Zeus for one year and then shit canned him. He was a fucking mess. An absolute mess. Worse Very, than all, all defense. Yeah. He, he had a few bites, but it was all real defensive biting. And then he, um, a lot of kind of fearish biting. Uh, but he looked like a, he was giant and he scared the shit out of people. Um, we had an alarm call at a business and the alarm wah, 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 was going off in there because it was broken into. And that scared him so bad that I couldn't get that guy to go back into buildings or anything like that. And so I talked him into getting rid of him. And uh, I got a Malinois and worked that dog for a little while before I became full time trainer and had to give the dog to someone else. Shit, dude. So what was the transition like from Shepherd to Mal? Well, um, it was crazy, of course. We, uh, are, there's this thing in this country. It's still, I still hear it from people that mouths are crazy and you can't work them and they're too much and they're too, you can't be a first time handler with a Malinois. Meanwhile, every military guy with a Malinois is a first time Malinois handler. All these police, all over this United States, there's guys that their first dog is a Malinois. You can't have it. You can't have our department never had one. We were German shepherds and up until Gina. Um, they never bought dogs. Dogs had to be donated. They had to be given to them. They wouldn't buy them. They had to be German Shepherds. And we had some real good German Shepherds. We had some real good ones. And we had Gina. Um, so I'm like, I'm getting a Malinois. I don't care. They're like, oh, they're crazy. I go, you don't even know what you're talking about. Someone told you that. You just heard that from a guy who heard it from a guy in the 80s. Right? It still happens today. You still hear it. So I... <laughs> I go buy this dog and his name is Loco, which didn't help, you know, so they made me change his name, but his name was Loco. He was great. He was everything you wanted in a police dog. He was, he was a Mal, you know, could jump 10 feet straight up in the air and always going and never stopping. And 
you know, uh, didn't track as good, you know, a, a good, a good, real good shepherd tracking wise is a dream to work, you know, and I've, I train a lot of good tracking Malinois. Um, Loco was not one of them. He was a little bit more of a sight person um, or sight dog, but uh, it, it was, it was good. And then now they have all mouths, I think. We had, we finally, we changed that culture. Yeah. It's funny. Things seem to change pretty quickly. I mean, you know, there's, there's nothing, uh, there's nothing bad to be said about a nice stable German shepherd, but um, yeah, a lot of people are switching to males, dude. Mm-hmm. A lot. And I know that like Pat and that talk about how the breed gets diluted a little bit in the pet world. And I definitely have seen a lot of that. Um, but yeah, man, the males, shepherds and males i don't know which one's my favorite man because i've done a little bit a bit a little bit with both i actually probably tend toward the shepherd to be honest just because i find that they're a little bit easier to sort of get along with i like their stable temperament yeah yeah cool man a tier a tier one shepherd like you get that that dog like i don't keep shepherds in my kennel i only get them on request and and my vendors know what i require out of a shepherd they're pretty good to train. They're pretty easy when you get that good one. Um, Mouse, um, I like them because they're a little more bomb-proof. And the bad ones, you can really see. The bad ones are really bad, the bad mouse. You can see it, though. They're, it's easy to see. And so you can just get rid of them before you even start when you're doing your selection. Um, but they're, I like the reckless abandonment of a, of a mouse. <laughs> I like I like it. The fact they'll smash through shit while, while the shepherd's doing math before he, you know, before he jumps. But, um, the training part of the shepherd is a little smoother. It, it tends to be. So the shepherds yeah. I get when I sell a shepherd they're you can guarantee their money. Yeah. I had a couple of male, I developed a couple of males for some agencies here. I had 50, 50 or so one of them made it and was really, really good. Um, and then one of them bombed out very, very early. And I knew mm-hmm. basically from about six months, he wasn't going to be a work dog. So yeah, I definitely had that dichotomous kind of like really, really good, really, really shit. So yeah, man, I've, I've worked that as well. Um, so what sort of injuries and, and bites are we talking about? I just want to hear a couple of worries about, about bites because I've never done it. Yeah. We, um, you know, all of us in, in the business get bit. I haven't been bit in a while. I, sh- I shouldn't say that. I got to knock on something. But um, here, I'll knock over here. They, uh, I've gotten pretty good. I'm pretty fast. Um, still, I can see it, stuff coming. And I have a pretty good relationship with dogs that, that um, I, I work them a lot without conflict, so I don't get bit as much anymore. But um, biting on the streets, um, I've seen bites where massive piece of flesh come off and the dog eats it. Um, we had a dog in our department that was on the U S Marshals fugitive task force. And he, they were going after a guy who was a rapist, like a career, you know, sex offender, rapist guy. And he was hiding in a cubby hole or something. And the dog bit him here and pulled his bicep out of his arm, out through the hole, all the way out. Um, Willie bit a guy once, um, in the arm, the guy did a burglary. It was great, man. I, I pull up. It's right around shift change. Guy breaks into this house. Uh, there's another dog guy there first. He sends his dog up the steps after the guy. The guy sees the dog coming, jumps out the second story window. Boom, lands and comes running by me. 
Steve and his dog are still in the house. He, I just rolled the window down. I said, dude, you better stop. He just he turned and ran down the sidewalk like it was a training day or something. Right down the sidewalk, I popped the door. Willie goes down. Willie bites him in the leg, takes him down. He was a big leg biter. Takes him down. I go running down there. I go over. The guy starts hitting him. Is hitting the dog, right? Willie lets go and bites him in the upper forearm area, like where the radial nerve and everything in there. And he severed everything in that guy's arm. Every blood vessel, every nerve, every all the muscle severed all of it. The only thing he didn't do was break the bone. Severed all of it. Blood's dumping out of his arm. I, uh, I'm like shit. Uh, and a backup guy comes pulling up. I'm like, stay here. And I run back to the cruiser with the dog, and I get the dog's first aid kit. So we're talking 2010. We had no tourniquets. 2011. Something. No, that's not it. That was not a thing. And um, so I go get his kit. I go running back. And uh, we're we're not too far from the fire station, so the ambulance shows up, and and they're like, they didn't tell us you shot him because it was that all that dark blood. And I'm like, I didn't shoot him. That's a dog bite. So we go to the hospital, and um, this is actually this was actually about two blocks from where the the excited delirium case happened. So we go to the hospital, and the doctor's like, listen, he's getting admitted. This is bad. Like he needs major surgery. So I call the lieutenant, and he goes, you unarrest that guy. And moonwalk the fuck out of that hospital. <laughs> and we'll file warrants on him, but we are not paying for this guy's time in, in intensive care after surgery. He was in there for 55 days. Jesus. It took a year. He had like a half a million dollar bill. Yeah, we didn't pay him. Um, took about a year to get him uh, on his uh, warrants. And I, I saw him in court, and he actually had a, uh, a tattoo can't remember his leg or arm and said Willie was here and it he said it changed his life forever changed him forever like in a good way he like he yeah stopped yeah or... yeah he was in he was at the time in a spi downward spiral of drugs and alcohol the house he was breaking into was his best friend's house so that's how mm -hmm. fucked up he had gotten and he said Willie was an eye-opener because then he's in the hospital for 55 days no alcohol thinking no about it yep he was it was bad and this was a guy who just he wasn't a career. He was stupid. You know, yeah. he wasn't a career. He broke his leg too, jumping out of the window. Um, but here's the funny thing. So I had a lot of bites and, and all my guys get a lot of apprehensions. And my favorite story as a canine handler was I'm working loco. I'm on day shift and the neighboring agency calls me. And there was these two teenage lovebirds that uh, had w walked off and left a suicide note. They were going to go kill themselves because they couldn't be together. So they go off. It's August. It's super hot. And they're gone for two hours. And Loco was not the dog you call for that, the search of a lifetime. He just, he wasn't a, a good tracking dog. And, uh, but I'm the, I'm, I'm the one working. It's just me. So I'm like, I never tell, I tell my guys, don't ever tell them no over the radio or over the phone go there and see what you can do so i said well all right we'll give it a shot i knew they were last seen at the end of the street was a dead end in a wooded area they were last seen going that way okay so two hours 90 degrees fahrenheit we go and sure enough i found those two fuckers uh alive we tracked 
I could tell he was kind of a mix of track and air scenting. We found a dead owl. I had to fight him over that. Then we're going this way, and he dives down into this call. We're on some railroad tracks. Dives down this culvert, finds their backpacks and shit. I'm like, ooh, we're getting close. We come back up, tracking, tracking, come around the corner. There they are. That's to date is still my favorite find because eh, those kids weren't going to do it. But regardless, we don't know that. And he was not the dog, but that day he was the dog. He absolutely did it. It was great. Yeah, dude, I, I was that was kind of what I was going to ask you about old mate that sort of repented, so to speak. I guess you, you'd have a sense of satisfaction of fighting the bad dudes and fucking them up and just feeling awesome because they're a rapist or a kitty fiddler or whatever. But then you join the cops. And I spoke to Greg Twenty about this as well. And he said something really, really similar. It was, a, you know, his sort of favorite track was finding someone that was going to kill themselves and didn't. Um, and I guess that's the other side of it, man. Like you're not like, yeah, you want to bite some bad guys, but you're also there to help people. And then if you actually get to do that, then, then like, what's, what's more satisfying for you or or biting all the bad guys or or those kind of stories? I still like biting bad guys. I still, that's my favorite because these guys are scum. We're not, I, I didn't bite the, the guy who stole a candy bar from walmart but yeah. you know i didn't bite those we bit the the guys who were in pursuits guys with guns guys the rapists the the murderers uh, you know I, i'll i'll tell you a story that sums up my time there um real quick so we had a guy who was a cop who retired from our police department way before i got on he was old he'd been shot nine times as a cop survived nine times he lived in his house that he lived in for 50, 60 years, and it was in the hood. No business living there, but it was one of them deals that wasn't the hood when he bought it, and it was paid off, and he had, his pension was probably shit because he'd been retired since the 80s, right? And he helped people in the neighborhood, and he had, his neighbor had this adult kid who he would help and let him come over and give him odd jobs to do. That guy came over to his house, because the cop also had an arsenal of guns and he killed him. He killed the cop. He, he stabbed him like 17 times, shot him like 14 times, stole a bunch of guns from him and leaves. The detectives figure out who it is. They catch him. They find him. Where's the gun that you shot him with? I gave it to my buddy. Here's where my buddy lives. I'm coming on shift at the time with the gang task force me and the sergeant in charge of the gang task force, we're going to go look for him. So the sergeant's going to go down the little street to the front. I'm going to go to the back of the house with a dog. However, I have to go through a church parking lot. It takes a minute to get there. There's like a wooded area in between for me to get to him. As, as Charles goes down the front, he sees him standing in the front yard. He goes, yep, there he is. He's running. As I come through the parking lot, I see him fling something into the wood line and he comes running into the parking lot. As I pull up, I scream up with the dog, pop the door, send the dog. As I, as the dog's on, on his way, the guy goes, okay, okay, okay. Fuck you, dude. And, uh, (laughs) Willie smokes him trash, just crushes him by the leg. Fucks this dude up. It was great. Um, that was so fulfilling, you know, so we, so we catch him. They, they come. Everybody's listening. Everybody comes over. We get him. The detectives want me to use the dog to figure out what he threw in the woods, right? 
we had never done this. We had never done a transition drill like that. And Willie is trying to murder everyone, everybody. So I'm like, I, okay, we'll try it. He's trying to bite me. I mean, he's, he's keyed up. And uh, so I send him into the wood line to hunt, to search. He finds a basketball, bites the basketball. So I got to fight him over that. So now this is even worse. I couldn't get him to do anything. So another dog, we called another dog out. He came over to find, sure enough, it's the murder weapon. Um, that, I mean, I, I know we're a team. That would have been cool, though, to bite that dude and then find that murder weapon with the same dog. You know, yeah. ultimately being results oriented, everything worked out. But um, that kind of summed up, and I loved every fucking second of that. I loved biting that guy. He was not getting a chance to surrender. Fuck you. Plus, he was only 10 feet away. There's, you can't recall it, though. It, it's, that's why the state of Ohio gives you 120 feet to do your recall for certification. You know what I mean? He's out. He's on his way. You had your chance, dude, when you saw the other cop. So that type of stuff, I absolutely loved. Absolutely loved it. Yeah, man. I, I want to, after this, I'll talk to you about a mate of mine. I want to put him on to you. Um, maybe a candidate for your, for your podcast, dude, Aussie canine handler. But it says the same stuff, man. Like, there's nothing wrong with being like, super fucking violent and vengeful and like as long as you know as long as you're a reasonably balanced person outside of that man like a bit of yeah. violence is a bit of violence never hurt anyone right forward <laughs> aggression solves problems yeah man hey look dude we've been going for it's it's almost two hours and i know like time's a bit of a limited one for this one do you have time to quickly touch on seal team and what you're doing now with your business yeah sure so I, um, I was working loco. I w- had met a trainer. So the SEAL teams, East Coast and West Coast, uh, the contract is run by a company called Cobra Canine. At the time, Cobra only had the East Coast. The West Coast had no dog program. Then they had a dog program for about a year. And then the contract was permanently bid out, you know, and Cobra got that. So in 2013, I'm still i'm working him i'm the head trainer having good time you know doing all that but i'm pretty jaded still and um they uh i get an email from the owner jeff of the company and matt who was the trainer that i had met hey do you want a job we have a job for you we just got this new contract it's in california do you want to you want to try it so i get a hold of them and um i said if the police department will give me a leave of absence i'll take a leave of absence and i'll go out there and try it Um, because it's a you know, that's all the way on the other side of the country. I'd have to move my family over there. Every, it's a big deal. And um, so I take the, I, they give me a six month leave of absence, different chief. Um, they give me my six month leave. And so I go out there in October of 2013 and I stayed four months and I left and came back. Um, it was a good gig. They, they just weren't paying on time, like six, seven days late on pay. 11 days late, 13 days late on payday. And I told him, I said, guys, even the worst day at the police department on payday, you still get paid when you're supposed to. And the contract, because it, it was just real screwy. The contract was being contested. So it was up in, up in the air. So it wasn't a four-year contract. It was a one-year contract with three re-ups where you would have to re-up every three times have preferential bid. Eventually, uh, right, right when I left, they got that, that part all squared away, but it just was too unstable and it's too bad because the job was great. 
I loved it. Yeah. Um, it was a good gig. I'm from Ohio. It's cold in the winter. I hate winter out there in California and San Diego. It's beautiful. There's you look at the ocean, you turn around, you're looking at mountains, you're looking at desert. There was just so much different things to do. I've been to San Diego several times. I loved it there. Um, but fuck, man, I got to get paid on payday. And it was just just too unstable. My daughter was. So 13 was uh, nine. My daughter was 11 and she did not want to move. She did not want to move. It was she has her core group of friends that are still her core group of friends and she didn't want to do. It. And believe it or not, I took some of that into account. Uh, people are like you listen to an 11 year old. I'm like, yeah, kind of. She, you know, yeah. and this one, you know, she would have been fine. She would have been fine. But you know what? There was a whole bunch of things compiled. If that was the only thing, probably she'd be living in California. But um, there's just a whole bunch of it. And but I liked it. I there was three trainers. So um, I had I had team one assigned to me. Another guy had team seven, I think. Another guy had team five. Team three was deployed. Uh, the other team was on leave, you know, post deployment leave. So there, was, so there was dogs in the in the kennel. I had team one that was doing a workup for a deployment. I had two guys, great dudes, good, good team guys, good handlers. You know, um, I I got lucky there. I had a good time. Um, but the the guys, I it was man. There was four of us living in a three hundred square foot apartment, three hundred fifty square feet. $1,800 a month. I was 40 some years old sleeping on a couch. I'm like, this, this ain't that great. Um, but the work was cool. The work was good. Um, it was, I liked it. I liked it a lot, actually. I, I kind of bummed out that I didn't get to stay, but it was ultimately, it was for me, it was the right decision. Yeah. Probably the same as leaving the cops. I imagine, man, you're like, fuck, I've done a heap of cool shit. I love it. But like, you can either leave on your own terms and still have a little bit left in the tank, or you can burn the fuck out and leave and leave as a fucking shit fight. Yeah. So when I came back, I came back to the police department and uh, worked in the detective bureau for a couple of months. And then they rebid the position, my training position, because the guy who took over for me sucked. He was terrible. He's uh, again, another horrible human being. He, um, you know, name and shame him. Uh, his name is Mike. Everyone who knows me knows that that's, I have like three mortal enemies in my life and he's one of them. I've known this dude since I'm 19 years old too. I've known him for a long time. I, I told somebody the other day, he's a Lieutenant. Now I said, I would rather be human traffic than to work for that fucking guy. But, um, he, he, he got out. So they put me in a, and I was full-time training at that point. No more handling dogs, just training dogs and firearms. I had to do firearms too. So it was in the training division after that. Okay, sweet. Yeah, then the rest of my career, that's what I did. I just trained the dogs until I I retired in November of 2018. Yeah, shit. Okay. Happy you did it? Feel better? Yeah, 100%. Um, I, I was not a cop anymore. I mean, I was. I worked at the police department. I was in the training division, but I wasn't a cop anymore. And I didn't want to be. I didn't want to go put on uniform and work the road. Uh, the, the chief, the guy who became the chief is my other mortal enemy, uh, as my entire time as the trainer, he was a captain and I was at war with that guy all the time. And I won every fight. The chief that I had during that time, I won. He sided with me on every single issue that did not endear me to that captain. He, he didn't like the fact that a patrolman was getting the, 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 cause I was right when we were fighting these things. This is a guy 
who when asked finally why he hated the canine unit, he said, do you know that they're, they wear T-shirts that says, if you ain't canine, you ain't shit? They're so arrogant and blah, blah, blah. Well, those T-shirts were worn in 1985 when that guy was a senior in high school. He was in high school, not at the police department, not there. It has no effect to him. He was told that story when he got hired and held a grudge against the canine unit his whole fucking career over something he had nothing to do with nothing. Yeah, man. So I had to fight with him all. He kept trying to get the unit shut down all the time, and I kept winning. So when he became chief, I retired. He says, why, why are you retiring? I'm like, I do not want to work for you. It's not a good dude. So, um, yeah, so I left, and the business was picking up, you know, and now the pet business has 27 employees and and all kinds of shit. So. And what about Van S. Kano and how's that going? It's going good. Um, on the police side, this is me, and I have one other guy who works for me part-time. He's a state trooper, so he works for me part-time. Uh, we do good. I, I'm... 50 to 70 dogs a year I sell. But um, I'm, I'll be honest with you, this is a, I don't think I've ever said this anywhere. I, I might be shutting the kennel down. Shit, okay. Uh, end of the year, maybe early next year. The, I still provide training and seminars and things like that, but the dog providing part of the business is horrible. Absolutely horrible. The, I did a cost analysis, and it just doesn't make money. Um, between the cost of the dog, I just got to, just got a freaking email today from my shipping company in, in Holland. Um, they're raising prices again. So each dog is going to cost me about $1,500 in shipping to get here. And um, yeah, about 1500 maybe even more than that. So that, that puts me about $6,500 for a dog in shipping just to get them here. And then they eat every day. So every day they cost money. And then I have an employee I got to pay for. And I have a kennel. And that's, got, that's money. You know, and the overhead's too much. So I think I, I might be shutting it down and getting out. I like dogs that I get, train, and sell to departments hitting the street. Uh, that's cool. I love it. But that does not pay a single bill. Barely yeah. pays for its own self. You know what I mean? Yeah, that, that's kind of why I didn't want to do it anymore, man. Like, it was a lot of effort, a lot of stress, and it just wasn't – it was never going to pay the bills for me, man. I think mm-hmm. that's been the general consensus. Like, you've got to yep. go – you've got to go pet – because it's the industry is so massive. I mean, even in Australia, it's like a seventeen billion dollar industry, dude. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I tell everybody, God makes dogs every day, and only less than one percent of those are police dogs. The market is just too small. You know, um, I have me and Jordan on the police side, and I have twelve trainers on the pet side, something like that. Eleven. So yeah. you know, it's definitely busy, but. Yeah, we'll have to do this again because I got a lot more stories. We can get into the brain stuff. I have a TBI from a motorcycle crash that affected me a lot, and Shit. you you won't they won't be able to see this, but you see this tattoo on my arm, this angry, rage filled individual on yeah. there. That's me when I retired. That's my mental state. What I was like. Um, I still got I got a little fired up today, but I'm nothing like I I was. And leaving and retiring from the police department made that go away. Yeah, good man. And and I guess that's that's the last thing I want to leave you on. I want I want to like for people out there who are listening to this, who are in a police department, who are in the military, who have shit leadership, hate their organization, or they've now left and they're maybe having a hard time, PTSD, depression, loneliness, whatever the the case is, like. 
you seem like a pretty well adjusted dude. Um, what's what, what do you have to say to people like that? Like, what's what's your message to them? Well, um, so like you know, my thing is I got into a motorcycle crash in 2012. Got a pretty a pretty nasty brain injury out of it lots of concussions from wakeboarding and different things like fuck i got two concussions last november dude from fucking wakeboarding like a moron but um and it just it manifested itself in me in anger right um guys that train with me now that trained with me before like fuck you didn't even yell at me this whole class like you know <laughs> just different it manifested itself in that it 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 at home it just in life in general um again i'm I started out as a passionate person. It just it's gets focused in the wrong direction. It makes you make stupid decisions and do stupid stuff and you know, you get into road rage road rage things and just just goofy shit. But you have to do for the guys that are doing that, you have to have some serious self-reflection. Serious self-reflection. Why? You know, why am I like this? You know, I had an, another shooting that I we didn't even get to. I I shot and killed a guy in in I have to guess because I because my brain injury I don't remember. I think it was 2012. It might have been 2011. I don't remember. I don't even remember his name. Um, but um, so I saw a lot of stuff. But guys saw worse things than me. Chris, that that is the trainer now that took over for me. He's done CPR and like three fucking babies, dude, in his career. Like saved lives of babies that got shot that he had to hold in his arms and run like six blocks to the hospital to take him there. You know, I didn't have anything like that, but that doesn't mean that, you know, and I think if without my motorcycle crash, I probably would have been less affected by things, you know, less angry with it. Um, but I, cause of my brain injury and, and concussions, I, I worry about the future with dementia and things like that. Who knows, you know, what my future holds on my head, but, um, what happens is guys get stuck. They get to a certain point in their career and they have to stay. If they want the pension, they have to stay. But that might be 15 more years going into a job that you don't like or that stresses you out. So if you're going to make that, you got to get out of that, that pension tunnel vision, right? You, people are like, oh, I just want to get to my pension and retire. There's really no such thing. There's no such thing as retiring at 55 and never working again. No such thing. Everybody goes and gets another job. So if you're going to stay, because you've got to get to that pension, change it up at the police department. Change a shift. Get a different partner. Try to go to the detective bureau. Maybe get promoted. Try some little change. I see it all the time. We had a guy named Dan at my police department who was a good dude who had some serious PTSD from the eyeball popping incident, and he fucking lost it, dude. He's the only guy I ever saw that change didn't help. He was he got put into the FBI task force, which is one of the prime positions for a patrolman in my department. And within months, they kicked him out because he was such a miserable prick. And, you know, that was all stemmed back from that incident, which he didn't know. We, nobody knows that. Um, I'm hoping still that the psychological treatment for guys is less stigma attached to it. You know, um, I think now when we shoot some people, they are bringing experts in to talk to them, you know. But, you know, there's still still those guys that were hired in the early 90s that roll their eyes at that, you know, fuck that pussy, you know, that type of shit. Yeah. But 
Also, one of the biggest mistakes guys make is in, in police work, you can work what's called extra jobs or side jobs or whatever, where you're working security at Walmart for extra cash, you know, and those guys live in their uniform. They live in it. You, you, you can't do that. You can't do that. Your friends outside of work, you got to try to get some people that maybe aren't cops that you can talk about any fucking thing else but work. You know what I mean? And, and you know, same thing with military. All your friends are military guys. You're with them. That's your bros. And I, and I get it. I get it. But what do you do? What do you talk about? Work and things related to work. And then people can get themselves kind of worked up because they all start then bitching about shit they don't like. Nobody sits down and has these conversations about how fucking awesome it is to work where they're working. You know, there might be little things you talk about, but most of the time it's complaining because they denied your time off or, you know, you, you couldn't do this. You couldn't you, you put in for, um, you know, a new tech vest and they denied it, that type of thing. And but so and so got to go there and, that, and it's always turns into that. So what I did before I. Years before I retired, when I met my wife, she had a house about 35 minutes away from the city. I was living in the city at the time. 35 minutes away, we live at a private gated lake. No one in here I work with. So all my friends are not cops. And we talk about everything else but police work. And it's nice. It's really nice, actually. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a good piece of advice to end with, man. Mate, thanks dude for coming on um like i said at the beginning man like time especially as a small business owner time's your most valuable asset man and for you to give some of your time to me and my audience dude i very much appreciate it bro so thanks heaps for coming on eric um and mate 100 dude well if you want to do a part two talk about tbi some of the other incidents yeah. especially like life post police um man i'd be honored to have you on again dude no problem. Yeah, it'll be great. We'll see. See if anybody even listens to this one. Nobody likes me, so. No one's listened so far, man. So. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'll be, be good. Right, it'll be good. <laughs> All right, man. Um, I'll shut it down and uh, see you soon, Eric. Get some sleep. Cheers, bro. Yeah. See you, bud. Thank you for listening to the show and we hope it inspired you to be better and live at your potential. Stay tuned for our next episode or check out our range of tactical canine equipment at www.origincanine.com.